and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna, and today we've got George. Welcome to the studio, George. Uh, George, like uh, me and Anna, is a first-year history PhD. In fact, like most of our guests so far, real <laughs> history over-representation, because history squad is best squad. So, George, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've uh, come to be in Manchester studying your PhD right now? Hi, I'm George. I'm originally from Cyprus, born and raised there. My dad is Cypriot and my mum's English. And, well, I, I came to Manchester because uh, Cyprus still has... It, it's an ex-colony, and I think there's still this tradition that when you go and study, you first of all study abroad, and if you don't go to Greece, then you'll either go to Britain or perhaps maybe America. And so that's why I'm in Manchester at the moment. So did you do your uh, earlier degrees at Manchester as well? I did, yeah. I did. I went from a BA at MMU to MA at University of Manchester and I've stayed here for my PhD now. Uh, all three degrees from Manchester universities is definitely the way to go. I strongly recommend it. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> do you? <laughs> yeah, I just I feel it's how I've become so well-rounded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Manchester's a great place. So. Yeah, it's a very, um, very livable city. So how long have you been living in Manchester now? I think about seven years. So long enough that it feels like home. Definitely, yeah. And I, I've met my girlfriend here as well, so... Um, yeah, that's pretty much as soon as you meet the person in that city, that's it, you're stuck. <laughs> that's certainly my experience. I was here for a... Stuck in the city or stuck with the person? Oh, a bit of both. <laughs> I mean, she, she's German as well, so um, it would be... If we did decide... Britain is a bit of a neutral ground, I guess. She doesn't speak Greek and I don't speak German, so uh, we both speak English. So here we are. Ah. Well, yeah. Isn't it great how so many people speak English and not <laughs> yeah. at all the product of colonialism? <laughs> Definitely. Could you possibly tell us a little bit about your research and what your project is about? Well, being from Cyprus, I think I'm slightly obsessed with Cyprus. People frequently tell me that I go on about it far too much. Um, <laughs> I, so... I can't think of anyone who's said that to you. <laughs> No, no so, one at all. Yeah. <laughs> My research looks at Cypriot communism and generally left-wing thought, and I'm trying to bring a transnational perspective on it and have a look at how intera it interacted with the larger communist movement, radicalism in the, in the 60s, and also trying to bring in this, at the, this aspect of um, third-worldism into it as well. So can you tell us a bit about third worldism? Obviously it's a term that, the third world is a term that's got a problematic history, does, but our yeah. understanding of, uh, of third worldism, I'd like to know more about that. Well yeah, it's got, a, it's got um, a bad rep for pretty good reasons in the sense that it encompasses large swathes of territory in an all-encompassing term despite their geographical, cultural, societal, economic differences. But I think it's kind of coming into into use again, especially with the works of someone like uh, Vijay Prashad, for example, who says that the third world was a political project whereby people, the peoples of um, previous, previously colonial countries were trying to carve out a space for themselves in the growing international order that was neither the developed 
so-called developed first world, nor the, the second world of communist Eastern Bloc, but a third world. So it, it was coined by a French sociologist, the term itself, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> I'm only at the start of my research. <laughs> but, it, but the idea of the third world isn't just... So it's not just a place. It's also... It's supposed to be referencing the third estate during the French Revolution. So it's got this element of um, revolutionary potential. And it's in the 60s, while the process of decolonization was taking place, a lot of radicals in Europe were... Beca- were being influenced by third world movements and ideas and incorporating it into their own struggles. It's interesting, isn't it, to kind of think about, as you say, it's a term that sort of that encompasses a very large area geographically, but it, it does also carry a lot of weight for those of us who grew up when it was still a term that was very much in, <laughs> in common use. Yeah. You know what is meant by it, but it it does also have this connection to to decolonization to to revolution that interestingly enough does bring these quite disparate territories often together yeah right like you're working on cyprus and i'm working on vietnam and yet we find all these areas of uh commonality to do with the aftermath of colonization the sort of attempted growth of and subsequent suppression of leftist thought very um it's all connected it is it's all connected it's all connected (laughs) and it's it's very very interesting also because you get to see kind of how ideas travel and the life of ideas and also i think as members of academic community it's always very interesting how kind of academics around the world pick up on each other's ideas and develop them and especially when I was um, reading up on history of imperialism as a term, it being incredibly problematic, because you know what Lenin meant by imperialism is very different from what people mean by cultural imperialism and stuff like that, and and colonialism. It's it's incredibly interesting how you have you know scholars in around the world picking up each other's ideas and building on them in this world before modern media and before modern communication. Do you think it makes it easier or harder to be someone who is researching leftist thought to also be very involved in leftist politics? Is it easier to understand or is it harder to separate yourself? I I was actually thinking about this the other day because I I was um, having an argument over Facebook with one of my friends, it's just in (laughs) private messages, it wasn't a, a flame war or anything like that. But we were talking about, say, the influence of Marx and how I would occasionally consider myself a Marxist. But then at the same time, coming from an academic background, I'm aware of all of the issues that sort of come with that, you know, teleological assumptions and, you know, abstractions that, you know, are not very historical. And so engaging in the politics and studying it at an academic level is definitely there's definitely a tension there but i'm not sure i i, I prefer to see it as a an inspiration mm. if, if rather than a um a blueprint if that makes sense yeah i, I mean that makes perfect sense to me because although i'm not sort of directly engaging with sort of uh with communism and leftist thought myself it certainly it comes up a lot in my reading <laughs> certainly and it's 
yeah, it is something where it enables me to, I feel an emotional connection to the yeah. subject because <laughs> it matters to me. But yeah, it's definitely important to be able to kind of distance myself from it a little bit because otherwise I think I'd just be mad all oh, the yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I mean, you are mad all oh, the time. I'm, I'm always mad <laughs> for various reasons. But I'm not sure. You, you've got to keep that level of objectivity horrible term as that is but at the same time i don't know i think i think it kind of helps to to sympathize with especially when you're looking at people if you're aware of the kinds of problems that they would have been facing then you can maybe in some way put yourself in their shoes and so at least at that basic level appreciate that things might not necessarily be black and white Mm -hmm. and that there are grey areas at at the very basic level. I think for me that's a huge part of historical practice generally. You know, I think I wouldn't be a historian if I wasn't really interested in people and the way that they react to the different problems that they're faced with. I think it's essential to be able to have sympathy and empathy for the people that you are researching, whether you agree with their, their politics or not, you know. Lord knows there was a lot of people involved in the Vietnam War that I don't agree with whatsoever, but I can still see to some extent why they made the decisions that they did and the feelings that they had, the fears that they faced, is what makes it such an interesting thing to study in some ways. It's not useful to kind of say, oh, well, these people were bad and these people, you know... This, for these people, it was a revolutionary struggle and these people were the oppressors because there was more to it than that. Yeah. I, I mean, personally, I think one of the main reason that I went to, that I decided to study history was from my experience of growing up in Cyprus and especially being a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> so my mum being British and my dad being Cypriot. In Cyprus, because of the conflict, it's still ongoing. You know, it's still the main news story of the day would be the latest development in what has been called the Cyprus problem. And that obviously has historical connotations. And when we were talking about history, I would notice that my mother would, who, you know, is for all accounts pretty left wing, but at the same time, if you were talking about the anti colonial struggle, would get quite defensive there'd frequently be quite you know arguments and so quite early on I got into this into that debate between a terrorist against freedom fighter you know (laughs) so I I think that I think that's always stayed with me a little bit that sort of idea of keeping a slight distance and to, to try and understand where people are coming from not just the historical actors I guess but even ourselves through the narration of what we are seeing that's that sort of the other element I think that's quite a common sort of origin story, isn't it, for modernist mm. historians, <laughs> for those of us who are working Real in the, the kind of um, the 20th century and especially the second half of the 20th century is quite often your family is a really big factor. I'm from, uh, I'm second generation, uh, so from an immigrant grandparents and hearing about their experience of uh, like refugee life and things like that and being displaced certainly triggered my interest in history. But Anna, as someone who works on olden times, <laughs> uh, do, is there something you think that sort of prompted your interest in history? I mean, it's early 20th century, so I'm not sure how olden times that is. <laughs> I think I certainly, I find religion quite complicated. 
I think that it's something that is kind of both personal and societal. And today I actually had a debate with someone who identified themselves as a missionary about conversion versus Christianization, because I don't like term conversion per se, because when we look at kind of historical process, conversion is a very personal process. It happens within you. We can talk about Christianization because that's the outward performance of your religious, but talking about kind of conversion, it's, it's happening inside you. How can you really know what another person is feeling? The best we can do is kind of try and empathize with the participants of our research and go, okay, this is what I think is happening. These are things which appear to be important. And it's similar, I think, with political beliefs. I actually think that political beliefs and religious beliefs are not that different from each other because it's basically a belief in how the world and the society work and what you should do based on that. And I would argue that communism in its very extreme iterations is incredibly religious, coming from an ex-communist country where <laughs> communism is still quite a big factor in politics nowadays and in culture. Um, it certainly has a lot of expressions in culture. It certainly has a lot of performative expressions, um, which I think are also characteristic of religion. And to be honest, which are often picked up by leftist thoughts outside of the ex-socialist bloc. Um, like all the parties that George goes to and which <laughs> Facebook sends me notifications of because like there are events happening that George is going to. <laughs> George is going to the hammer and sickle disco. <laughs> it, it was called the five year plan actually. <laughs> That's not even a joke. <laughs> But, I mean, that's something that uh, is... And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but all of us are actually quite immersed in, obviously, in academia and in a city which has a really strong history with um, workers' rights and uh, labour union history, um, sort of socialist thought. So we are in a real sort of leftist environment nearly all of the time so it's yeah it's really normal to see that your friends off to the five-year plan <laughs> which um, was actually just a disco night i just want to like it wasn't there was nothing soviet about it was it. a, a <laughs> disco was... night attended by very poorly constructed tractors <laughs> <laughs> also it was supposed to end at 11 o'clock but uh it ended at nine because it was ahead of schedule <laughs> The quotas were all met. Yeah, I think Man I think being in Manchester has definitely, personally, influenced yeah. my politics and the way I think about things. I don't know. Like it, it's it's still strange to try and sort of one of the reasons that you study history is okay. You become interested in certain things, so you kind of want to see how things happened. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's personally why. That's the large reason why I sort of study what it is yeah. I study. I've found that having an understanding of history has helped to make the political situation more tolerable <laughs> just from being able to see or have an idea of what's a real thing that's happening and then what is just a sort of another expression of various patterns that we've seen before, you know, 
it gives it does give you a sense of what is media manipulation and what is just kind of something we've seen before going by a different name it can help to stop the news from driving me completely insane although <laughs> i still do everything i can to not encounter the news on a daily basis oh, it's too I've depressing stopped, I've, I've stopped reading about bre- i can't i can't keep up if anything yeah <laughs> also, I was yeah I was in a cafe this morning and yeah the news just twenty four hour news playing in a cafe while I'm trying to enjoy my chai latte just the worst. I I actually do read the news quite a lot um, partially because even though my research is kind of older you know it does often kind of relate to very modern political debates which it's quite useful for me to stay on top of. But at the same time, I really like how recently I was reading about kind of the panics that people had and anxieties people had about the world order in you know 1900 and how the world is coming to an end and Japan is going to invade everyone and you know and, and these these kind of stories repeat themselves mm-hmm. with different actors, but they're incredibly similar mm-hmm. and that's something that is deeply fascinating and it says something about human nature and the nature of politics. It definitely puts things into perspective as well, isn't it? But I also think that like, reading about like, reading the newspapers and engaging in politics now sort of changes the way you see the past as well. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like this, uh, it's a vicious circle. It's quite, <laughs> it's, it is quite reciprocal. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I have a sort of a sense of guilt about not wanting to read or listen to the news but also just in terms of my own well-being i know that <laughs> i know that i can't do anything to change what's happening it, like in the in the grandest scheme of things obviously you know i am politically active i vote i'm not just a like a plastic bag on the wind <laughs> of, of politics but i i know that it it's not going to help me to read a 6,000-word article about Brexit. That won't help me feel better about it or understand it. It'll just... But, but there's also, I mean, you mentioned the media earlier, and they do everything within their power to make sure that you are buying newspapers, and so they will hype everything. So you don't need to read... Like if, if, you're, if you're keeping abreast with it, I feel at least a little bit... You don't need to know all the ins and outs and the twists and turns and all that stuff. It just doesn't help you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the most newspapers or websites will try and get a week of stories out of a single incident because that they're feeding an appetite, which is there. And But it makes everything feel... If you're not paying attention, everything starts to feel catastrophic. Every little decision, you're just like, oh, well, this is it. But see, this is where history can help as well. Because yeah. if you... If you because if you say start researching the rise of civil society and the public sphere and that kind of stuff and issues about around globalization and a global world order and stuff like that then you can you can appreciate where the structures that give you the information that you are then so worried about actually come from so it's yeah yeah and with my it's not exactly a conspiracy hat on because it is basically <laughs> true but there are the people who sell you newspapers, the people who make money from Facebook want you to feel anxious. It is in their interests if you're anxiously checking your phone for news all the time. It's in their interests if you feel like everything's going to pieces because you'll spend more money and make 
worst decisions. So freeing yourself from that anxiety in any way you can is a radical act. Speaking of which, last night I watched uh, John Carpenter's They Live. Have you ever seen <gasps> that it? That is such a good film. It stars <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper, a pro wrestler. Oh, really? Is he, <laughs> yeah. a wrestler? is he actually a wrestler? Yeah. I did wonder was. why that, that scene... Um, why that scene lasted for so long where he's the, fighting the with his friends. Yeah. <laughs> like it lasted like seven minutes longer than it should have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have you seen They Live? No. I don't I don't know if you would like it. That it sort of revolves around a guy who has a pair of glasses that lets him see the world as it really is. And uh, he can see that it's basically aliens have infiltrated Earth and are just controlling people through advertising and consumerism. It's yeah, it's very really interesting. John Carpenter makes really interesting films. <laughs> very good. You so should watch it. And you should like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite obliged to. You are yes. obliged to like it. Yeah. It's got a good edge of humour to it. For something yeah. that's got a message, it's quite... It's kind of funny, a little bit scary. It's like... It's got a good yeah, kind of 80s... Some of, yeah, because some of the aliens, like, they are... I don't want to give it away too much, but they are the rich and wealthy, essentially. And so when you put the glasses on, you can see them as aliens... The lizard people. Yeah, they kind of. They are. They are a little bit lizardy. Yeah, it's it's, it's got a bit of a sort of a lizard people yeah. theme to it. Oh God, maybe David Icke has watched it. Oh God. Well, we'll have to save this for some kind of a conspiracy theory spin-off podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, conspiracy theories are great. Um, I, they're fantastic. I have quite a passion for conspiracy theories. Do you have a favourite one? I have, I have a, actually, I have a favourite conspiracy, but also I think what I find really strange is how people take something that obviously did happen and deny it, like moon landing. And <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be very surprised to hear what my favourite conspiracy theory is. <laughs> well, what is it? <laughs> uh... So, specifically, I believe that man has been to the moon, but didn't go in 1969. <laughs> See, um, one of my best friends, who now lives in Australia, uh, his dad watched the original moon landing and for years was obsessed with it. And so when, I can't remember, I think they went down to London or something like that, because apparently the original spaceship shuttle thing was, was there. So they went to go see it, and apparently his dad stood in front of this thing for a good half an hour, was just looking at it, and my friend goes up to him and says, are you okay, Dad? And he went, he was looking at it, it looked flimsy, and he went, I don't believe that they landed on the moon. And it was like his entire world had been shattered because he couldn't believe that this tin can had been to the moon. I yeah. mean, I appreciate it's a fringe opinion. I'm not going to make any arguments <laughs> for it, but that is, that's the one that I believe. The one that I enjoy the most is that the Earth is hollow and we live on the inside. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? You, you've blown my tiny mind. <laughs> Please explain this one. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so there's already there's a subset of people. I guess they're kind of related to flat earthers who believe in the hollow Earth. Some people believe that the Earth is a hollow globe and that there's another society living on the inside. Mole people. Mole people, exactly. Yeah. But there is also this tiny little subculture of people who believe that the Earth is a hollow sphere and that we're the ones living on the inside. But, 
Which but I'm just I'm obsessed with because it's the most <laughs> yeah, it's the most flimsy conspiracy theory I can imagine. <laughs> like I kinda like it though. Yeah. It's 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 fun I, because it's it's not like being against vaccinations or something where it harms people. It's just really <laughs> stupid. It's just oh, the, chemtrails. Yes. Oh, see, chemtrails in Cyprus has got an additional sinister spin because of the existence of British army bases there. Uh-huh. So it's not just some global elite that are doing it; it's the British. It's the British. Yeah. <laughs> Without British the chemicals. Yeah. Uh, planes full of tea, just yes. <laughs> sprinkling them all over the Cypriot countryside. Uh, I mean, the appeal of the conspiracy theory, of course, is that you know something that everyone else doesn't know. So you can sort of understand why they're they're so popular and why people are so drawn to them. It's because you're special. If you know, you know, if, if most people believe that the moon landing is real and you're the person who knows it wasn't, then you're like on this kind of extra level of, of understanding. But they can certainly, I guess, in the globalised world and with the internet and stuff, they can be quite toxic as well and can bring out the worst in people. Definitely. And I mean, it's also kind of bringing up the question of the role of the media, because especially kind of moon landing and space race, there was so much contemporary media and contemporary beliefs surrounding it and how somehow going into space was going to prove that you're a better country rather than, you know, improving the level of life of your citizens. You know, it it is incredibly fascinating and it's something that you know there are still so many soviet versus u.s debates around it which are fascinating should, should we start a history journal um around conspiracy theories and and the you know socio and political uh, significance and stuff the thing like is that. i feel like i could write a really good article about that and particularly about the kind of the figure of russia in the american imagination because even because even now, so many American conspiracy theories or ideas about conspiracies against the U.S. do center on Russia. You know that it's Russian bot farms that stole the election or whatever. It's there's the uh, almost a cultural idea of if the fault's not ours, it must be theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there is similar thing though. You know in Russia and there is I think that's that's kind of a two way process there is like the West are trying to surround us there is a TV channel which like puts on documentaries about either aliens or how America is about to invade us like <laughs> literally a separate channel my dad watches it way too well, much at least it's a separate channel <laughs> <laughs> it's Not a federal a channel yeah. it's a federal channel like it's Wait, a cha- are, the, are the aliens and the Americans on the same channel yes oh. <laughs> Because America's on the moon. <laughs> no, I just said it well, wasn't. <laughs> well, again, coming from the so-called third world, the, um, our conspiracies revolve around both of your, uh, <laughs> both the West and the East, depending on your political affiliation. Mm. See, that's how you determine whether you're first world, third world, oh, right. or s- uh, second there world. There we go. I can, I can stop my PhD now. <laughs> I, know, um, I mean, I don't think it should be a journal. I think it should be a blog so it's more accessible. Mm, yeah, and also then we don't have to include any citations so we can really hit the market we want, which is conspiracy theory nuts. <laughs> Why is this not a thing already? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so if you're listening to this podcast, don't steal our idea. Yeah. 
we, we will use this podcast to prove that we yeah. have come up with it first. Ah, yeah, we can use it as evidence in a court of law. One of the other things that we talk about when we have guests on the podcast is the kind of uh, the health and well-being aspect of doing a PhD. And we thought that this week it might be a good idea to talk about sort of um, exercise and fitness and how we kind of uh, incorporate that into our into our research lives because everyone knows that PhDs spend most of their time hunched over a desk getting scoliosis. Scoliosis, a back problem? Yes. No, if you're a medic, don't write in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I know that you're a, a relatively active guy, so can you tell us a bit about the uh, sort of how you fit exercise in? Emphasis on the relative. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, it, the PH, the Salk building, gets a lot of bad rep, but I actually quite like the community there. Mm. Especially one of, and one of the biggest reasons is that we organise a once a week we play football with each other, and at the moment that's actually the only exercise that I'm getting. And so, uh, so I am deeply, deeply grateful for it. Mm. Um, if you guys want to play, by the way, it's uh, gender inclusive, or I don't. Well, I'm a, I'm not a team player, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, the fitness things that I do in my life, it's been swimming, running, and lifting weights, where it's me versus me. Fair enough. Because it's not that I don't play well with others, it's just as soon as someone else is relying on me, I crumble. Oh, right. Fair <laughs> <It's>, enough. <laughs> um, but besides that, I used to do MMA, but unfortunately that stopped now, and the people who organised it are moving on to bigger and better things. Bigger and better than punching and kicking. I know. And the... mat-based cuddling. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, jiu-jitsu is uh, deeply intimate, far more intimate than I would want to <laughs> be with another human being that I've only just met. <laughs> but yeah, actually, MMA was really nice. I, as strange as it sounds, when you are being punched and you are punching back, at the end of that session, you feel really good. It's mm. a bit the only similar experience I've had is where I, bit, I went to Iceland and we did that thing where you go into a sauna and then go into a freezing lake. Mm. And, and come out and it, it sounds horrible and it kind of feels horrible at the time but but once you've done it you just feel amazing no i was at a spa last weekend and did a sauna into a plunge pool mm. and it is yeah there's something about the intensity of an experience especially when doing a phd is quite it's very mentally intense it's quite good to kind of switch off and do something that is very physical yeah I, definitely. I definitely find that, like, I've got, um, I've been quite uh, open about this on the podcast, but one of the things that I really struggle with is anxiety, and I will, you know, lie awake at night and stress about the PhD, and any time that I've got kind of quiet in my brain, I'm stressing, but since I've started running, you know, I can run for an hour or an hour and a half, and the only thing I'm thinking about is one foot in front of the other exactly the same in the pool you know counting down to 160 lengths or something you'd think that that time would be ideal worrying time but instead i get kind of a little bit of peace and it definitely really helps very zen yeah yeah i think when you spend a lot of time doing smart stuff doing something quite stupid stupid. (laughs) (laughs) like being punched in the face (laughs) like being punched in the face or jumping into ice cold water there is a there's something about it that's 
just refreshing and lets your brain shut down. I'm not the sportiest of people, <laughs> would be the nicest way of putting that. But, um, I mean, I I never jumped into an icy leg, but we do go to sauna quite a lot back at home. And when we do, I just usually, if it's winter, go outside and lie in snow. Mm. Um, okay. Which is really satisfying. But also, if it's a little bit icy, it's very, very easy to cut yourself on the ice, which is not nice. Oh, to wow. cut yourself? Yes. So oh. if See, ice you... is a foreign concept to me, you see, because <laughs> coming where I'm from. So if, if... The Cypress equivalent is lying down on a cactus. <laughs> <laughs> if there has been a snow... And then there's been a slightly warmer day, so the top of the snow would be kind of melted. And then the day after, uh, the night after, it would kind of stick back together into an icy crust. And that is quite thin and quite prickly. It's not the very satisfying like sensation to touch it, especially when you're trying to like make a snowball and throw it at your sister. Um, <laughs> <What> <laughs> so with the ice knife. Yeah. <laughs> You mean Mother Nature is stopping you from uh, bullying your sister? Is that what you're saying? I mean, it doesn't stop me from throwing it. <laughs> it's just, you know, hurting me as well as her. <laughs> Don't you wear gloves? <laughs> no, she's from Russia. Oh, right, <laughs> no, I really hate gloves. Gloves is a concept which I never managed to embrace. I just, I, I don't like the sensation of gloves. I don't like anything restricting my, my hands. It's just something that I thoroughly dislike I disliked it as a child I still really don't like it I sometimes go at minus 20 without gloves just because I hate them so much wow that is that's really either really tough or really stupid (laughs) it's very stupid because afterwards like your skin gets like Probably, and you have to like put a lot of water in it. It's <laughs> not kank. <laughs> She's got frostbite. <laughs> that, that's called frostbite, not kangrene. Mm. I'm looking at Anna's hands size. right now, and she's only got three fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was a bear fight. That was a different thing, you know. You should see the bear. <laughs> I thought she lost them in a yachting accident. <laughs> Oligarchal life. <laughs> Why am I friends with you people? Who knows? <laughs> I wouldn't be. To anyone listening, I'm looking for new friends. <laughs> if you're interested, email nsfppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Don't do it, she'll trick you onto the podcast. <laughs> I probably That's will. Me. Um, I've actually, yesterday there was an email round from uh, a person who is a film student and they were asking about whether anyone researches film and I was like I don't research film but would you like to come in the podcast and talk about film <laughs> pretty much my uh my first thought whenever I meet a new PhD is can I get them on the podcast we're desperate folks please write in finally the thing that we ask all our guests to do uh is to share something funny from their research or from their life as a researcher so do you uh have something to share with us I've been thinking about this, and I I can't really think of anything all that funny. I think the greatest joys that I find is when I'm actually in the archive, and you're going through these papers. You know, they it's usually I mean studying communism. I've I've been through say for example the the Communist Party archives at the People's History Museum of the Communist Party of Great Britain. That is, and so you'll get um 
disciplinary files where uh, the some kind of judge person is uh, giving his opinion on, on someone who's being disciplined and, and it that's usually quite amusing. I can't, I can't remember. It just feels like you're watching a drama, <laughs> a drama unfold, especially when it was um, in the Cypriot cells. Uh, people didn't like each other. <laughs> and so they would just constantly be... Uh, you, you'd find different letters from different people saying, oh, he said this, they said that, that other person said this, and but I'm telling the truth. <laughs> just classic snitching. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Although I have to say, I was in the National Archives once, and... I was looking at stuff from during the Second World War. Cyprus fought on the Allies' side after much ooming and eyeing, <laughs> and especially left-wing Cypriots, they, they actually joined after the Soviet Union joined uh, the war on the Allies' side as well. But at some point, Cypriot soldiers started complaining that they weren't being paid as much as their British counterparts, and I found this letter from some general or some major, I can't remember who it was, and the tone of it, you could tell that he was really upset and was saying, oh, this is preposterous, they're, they're being paid exactly, you know, as much as they should be paid, which is two-thirds of what the British are being paid, and the exact same as the Maltese. And, and it was, it was, I, don't, I mean, I should, probably shouldn't find it funny, but I think it was just the, the self-righteous tone that he was saying it in. That I, I think I actually laughed out loud when I was in the archive because I just wasn't expect. It was almost like he had written it almost like a punchline. Well, I think all that's left to say is thank you so much for being our guest on this episode. It's been, I can happily say, an absolute pleasure. And we've covered some pretty weird subjects. I'm going to have a, a fun time editing this one. Yeah. <laughs> Cut Thank out you. some of the weird stuff, sorry. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to leave the weird stuff in. Oh. I'm going to cut out the normal stuff. Right, that's fine. <laughs> uh, thank you, as always, to Anna. Thank you very much, Georgia. Thank you both. This has been Not Safe for Publication. Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens in the podcast stays in the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence. <laughs> <laughs>